Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Helen Whitney, a documentary filmmaker, award-winning filmmaker of The Mormons and Faith and Doubt at Ground Zero and many others. Helen Whitney has uh, explored the uh, the lives of uh, people, especially with the religious experience and with the outsiders, and her films have included Forgiveness, A Time to Love and A Time to Hate. A pleasure to welcome in Helen Whitney. Thanks. And thank you for inviting me. Uh, so uh, what do you hope uh, people get from these series of evenings with you? Well, I think they'll get an intimate sense of my life in film and my preoccupations with religious ideas, religious experiences, and my fascination with outsiders, their radical otherness. But I also hope, and this is probably speaking to students as as well as faculty, they'll get a sense of the possibility of documentary films. And and while it's a precarious life, financially precarious, uh, it is a life I feel, because I left graduate school in, at University of Chicago to really to go on the road and, and have this life. It's, it's a life as rigorous, I feel, educationally, uh, as is life in, in academia. And I also think it's, so it's not only sort of intellectually enriching, I think it's uh, the life of a filmmaker can be profoundly humanizing. You are meeting people who are sometimes radically other, and you are frequently and appropriately forced to ask yourself, uh, they could be me, or they're but for the grace of, or I never understood, uh, and always seeing what, what connects us as well as what divides us. And I also I happen to be a, a great enthusiast of, docu- of the documentary form and a film itself because I think it's a, a wonderfully promiscuous form, art form that uses poetry and music and haiku narration and obviously imagery. Uh, and it's like this seething stew of, you know, of possibilities and therefore has an emotional wallop, I think, unusual for most art forms. So I, I hope that for the aspiring filmmakers or for students who are just interested in film as a artistic language and, and also for faculty and for community members who love film that they will come and and have a renewed and deepened appreciation for the documentary form. Mm. Uh, you started out, I think, uh, making features. Well, for about six or seven years, I made small features with actors uh, for television. And it, 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 was a, it was a very interesting experience. I worked with wonderful actors. Uh, one, my first script uh, was taken by Sundance in 1982. And uh, I, I had a wonderful time. And I think some of those skills that I I mean, I, I mean, I started out as a documentary filmmaker, then I took this seven-year hiatus, and then I came back. And I miss documentary films. You have a, a really a power as an author that you, you, you don't have on television as a feature uh, a director. I mean, you really, in documentaries, you write your film, you produce it, you direct it, and the network executives come in only at the last minute. That's not so earlier on. Uh, and, you know, I... The documentaries take you out into the world in a way that features did not, but at the same time working with actors was really 
a great gift. And I think that that experience went back into my documentary work as, as also a fluidity with a camera technique. Mm. I enjoyed both, but particularly documentaries. You do a lot of uh, work exploring um, the lives of people of faith, You're exploring the nature of faith, mm-hmm. That your, your film on uh, 9-11. Mm-hmm. Faith and doubt. And so that intersection of faith and doubt mm-hmm. seems like that, that is fascinating to you. It really is. And, I, and as I said last night if, uh, in my first lecture, I sort of gave the personal roots of that. I came out of a background, really quite a conflicting one faith-wise, of Unitarianism, which is quite a secular religion, which you discuss the New York Times frequently and uh, from the pulpit, and the Russian Orthodox Church, where my piano teacher would take me to. And of course, anyone who's been inside the Russian Orthodox Church knows that it's filled with bells and whistles, and and it celebrates the passion front center. It's a kind of theatrical sort of experience of, of faith. And, and I think my Unitarianism made it difficult for me to, it, to compel belief, but, but I think the Russian Orthodox religion set up a longing in me uh, for it. So those two sort of strains in my background were decisive and also my first film which I cared about and is my most favorite film, The Monastery. Uh, I spent eight months in a Trappist monastery, and it was an extraordinary, life-changing experience. And I came out of that ever more fascinated with radical religious commitment and feeling that while I remain an agnostic, the existential questions that the monks were asking every day, every night, uh, why are we here? Is this all there is? Why must we die? Became for me the most interesting question. So whether I'm making an explicitly religious film like The Pope, John Paul II, or Faith and Doubt at Ground Zero, or The Mormons, or I'm making a film about youth gangs, or the McCarthy era victims, or the mentally ill, the subtext is still there. Those questions are still there. I mean, the title of my film about the mentally ill is they have souls too. Mm. So. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's certainly true. If you ever worked with or been friends with someone who is mentally ill, it's it's a very interesting experience and 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 hard and hard. Very hard. Yeah, you you see the person, you see the real person, mm-hmm. and sort of inside of themselves, you see the struggle that they're struggle. That they're they're working with. Let's uh, let's jump into. I'd like to uh, jump into your latest film, Forgiveness: A Time to Love and a Time to Hate. Uh, this is a, a fascinating film, and uh, maybe some people, many people saw it on, on PBS. Here's your quote. Forgiveness is elusive, mysterious, primal, an idea and an ache that's rooted in existential concerns. And uh, I think this is important to you. The film is meant to raise questions, not to provide answers. Absolutely. Absolutely. When I embarked on this film, and I did it reluctantly, I'd just come off the Mormon film, which was an epic endeavor, those four hours. I really wanted a small, tidy little film that I could shoot in my, in my bedroom if necessary. And I, and I really was offered this film, uh, and I initially thought it was this and it's true, this big, baggy idea that everybody thought they knew what it was. And the, sort of the exciting part for me and what drew me in is that nobody really, there is no consensus about what it is and what it is becoming. And it is complex beyond my wildest dreams. And 
and I and I found that compelling and fascinating that that there is this really contentious and passionate divergence, really not just between individuals but between religions about about forgiveness, and even more to the point it uh, there is there is some contentiousness about whether it is an unambiguous good uh, forgiveness is generally a good and can be transformative, but it also can be limited and on rare occasions dangerous as well. So all these ideas I began to think about as I was doing my research and I and I and I so quickly moved beyond my first initial skepticism about this film because I think for many people there's a sentimental aura around forgiveness. It comes with these new age, unexamined pieties that forgiveness is something that's always right to do and that for those who cannot do it, who refuse to forgive, even when pressured to do so, they're somehow, they're spiritual underachievers. And, you know, the further I got into this film, the, the more I realized that this film could only raise questions and not provide answers. And so as you went along, the, more questions were raised than, than answers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you you talk about the Amish, and I think we all know about this this incident. There's a, a tragedy. Uh, a, a man, I don't know what was in his mind, but but he uh, he went to a schoolhouse, killed several young Amish girls, mm-hmm. uh, and the community, based on their religious tenets, forgave immediately. Absolutely. Which many in your film uh, call majestic. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. But you have, uh, I think it's Boston Globe. Mm-hmm columnist, uh, mm-hmm. Jeff Jacoby, mm-hmm. uh, being skeptical mm-hmm. about this. Why mm-hmm. Why was he skeptical? And others, too. Yes. Um, when I first read about this, and boy, this story had traction. It did, I mean, it was three months and it, that it held the wall and foreign papers were picking it up as well. And, and the response was, again, almost unambiguous. It was what the Amish did had a moral grandeur to it. And, you know, we all read about these terrible school killings and then lawsuits that soon follow, and why didn't the parents know, and were they responsible, and here are the Amish, you know, really just immediately going to the widow and saying, we're not going to sue you. We're going to share our love with you and whatever financial help you might need. I mean, it really was quite extraordinary. But I also felt... um, that it was that, but there was another complicated response that was the attention was not being paid to. And first of all, you know, one of the great divides between Christians and Jews is conditional and unconditional forgiveness. And Jeff Jacoby, the man you refer to, the very interesting Boston Globe columnist who is um, an observant Jew, and he brought up those differences. And he said for most Jews... Uh, Unconditional forgiveness for murder, first of all, is not something that anyone can give vicariously. It belongs to the victim and the victim is dead. But beyond that, he said, I don't think that Jews, you know, we we have a complicated process about forgiveness. There, there is, uh, you know, there has to be acknowledgement, there restitution, a thinking about uh, a dialogue between. It shouldn't happen immediately, and and so he was focusing on that chasm sometimes that separates Jews and Christians. And then there were therapists who were weighing in, saying. 
it it's not that it was wrong what the Amish did, not at all, but it was so quick. And was there psychological harm as a result if you forgive before you have internalized it? And then there was an Amish man uh, who was a former Amish who said, you know, I love my religion. I have left it, but I love it. I am not bitter, and I see the grandeur. But he said, if you're thinking about authentic forgiveness, um, one could raise the question with the Amish that it comes as a directive. You must forgive, otherwise you will not you will not go to heaven. So he said, I, you know, those are questions that I have, uh, that it might be better to sort of work at it so it becomes, the forgiveness comes from the heart and the soul and the bone of that person, and it has a deeper spiritual meaning than this is a command, we got to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I did was add those voices uh, to this tragic, you know, event in no way to take away from, again, the moral grandeur of what, what happened, but to complicate it, which mm-hmm. is what I hope my films always do, yeah, complicate yeah. It's very interesting to, to think about that. Mm-hmm. Perhaps each of the people in those communities would then have to achieve authentic forgiveness in, mm-hmm. in their heart, that might take a longer time. Mm-hmm. Or not. I, I don't know if anybody's gone back. Of course, it's hard to get into the into the community in, in that particular case and talk to the individual people about their process well, of forgiveness. Well, you know, we did interview one of the therapists, the grief counselors, and he said, it was five years later, that they are still sort of working through. And, and the last scene of that story, I think, is telling one of the w- uh, women I interviewed who was the first person on the scene, she was the, one of the medical coroners and had to see the bodies, and she's still in shock about it. But she said she was in a grief counseling clinic with a lot of the young boys who, who I think, who fled the schoolhouse. And the Amish had destroyed the schoolhouse late at night. Uh, they wanted no sign of it. And one little boy said to her, uh, they came and they destroyed our schoolhouse, but we'll always remember that schoolhouse. And then another little boy said to him, hush, you're not supposed to say that. We're supposed to forgive. And inside that little exchange, you felt, you know, the tension. Even in a young child, one of them was saying, you can't just do it. You may destroy that schoolhouse, but the schoolhouse is in our heart. And the other saying, no, you can't because... We have to forgive. So I thought that was a fascinating exchange. And yet, as you say, and you see it in the film, uh, even if individual people in the community are struggling with it, there is a moral grandeur to this. There is a moral grandeur idea. to it. And and I genuinely feel that. I really do. Um, and people I met were extraordinary. They mm. really were. I, but again, I just think it's important to look at those other voices and and understand the event in a, a deeper, more layered way. Hmm. Yeah. We're talking with um, Helen Whitney, who is a documentary filmmaker, award-winning. Uh, you may have seen some of her films, which include The Mormons, which was a big hit on PBS. Uh, also her latest, that's what we're talking about right now, Forgiveness. Time to love and a time to hate. Uh, Faith and doubt at ground zero, and many others. We'll be back with Helen Whitney, including hearing some clips from uh, Forgiveness, a very interesting case which gets to the heart of are there uh, crimes, hurts Mm -hmm. that are unforgivable? Mm -hmm. And a very powerful passage where we hear from two women one who's the perpetrator, the other who lost her father. We'll hear that following this break. On the next Ask Me Another, three 
A-list celebrities are late to realize what it is to work for public radio. I don't do the voice dialing. No, I must be paid. I don't give advice for free. Ah, paid, huh? You know what I usually make for this? What? It's astonishing. (laughs) Join me, Ophira Eisenberg, along with Brad Bird, Dan Savage, and Alex Borstein on NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia. Join us Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival. Featuring Dracula in addition to seminars, tours, and more as part of the festival experience. Information at bard.org. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about forgiveness, talk about the Mormons, faith and doubt at ground zero. All of these are subjects of films from Helen Whitney. We're talking with Helen Whitney about her film Forgiveness, uh, A Time to Love and a Time to Hate. Uh, I want to uh, move, we talked about the Amish and the, this this tension, this complexity between this moral grandeur they immediately forgave, in, including embracing the widow of the man who who uh, killed these uh, young Amish girls, and he himself died in, in this, this tragedy. Uh, but the fact that it's, it's more complex than that, perhaps, and then there's some tensions within the community. There, you did mention that perhaps in some cases it's dangerous to forgive or to tell yourself you've forgiven too soon. And you have a passage in the film that I'd like you to tell us about a woman in Oregon mm, yeah. who, who was attacked. Right. And in her mind, she was doing the right thing, mm-hmm. but it ended up harming her for several years. This is a, a very interesting woman, a Yale uh, freshman or sophomore, who was camping out in Portland with a roommate, and out of the night, uh, some violent assailant emerged with an axe and tried to really cut off her limbs and to massacre and to kill her. Her roommate was blinded, and she was severely injured. And her immediate response at that moment was early 70s. She just read a lot about Gandhi. She thought, you know, I'm alive. I am going to go into that zone of forgiveness, and I'll think that this is someone who there were perhaps had a terrible childhood, poverty, mitigating circumstances, and I'm not going to go back and find out what happened, and I'm not going to think about it, and I'm going to move into that zone of a kind of generalized forgiveness or oblivion about it. And really, about 20 years later, this very attractive, brilliant young woman wakes up and realizes that she has really lost her life. I mean, she is subject to nightmares and risking her life. And I think her one of her friends just said, unless you do something about this, you'll be dead. Uh, and so she goes back to that little tiny town in Portland to find the man who had tried to kill her. And of course, the statute of limitations is over. It's over in three years. But she tracks him down. And in so doing, she finds out that the entire town had known who he was. Most of the town had not said anything, and he had tyrannized the town. A black cloud was over the town, and he had, you know, he was a, a violent to the women in his life, nearly killed one, beat up all of his girlfriends. And while she can't, and she really, she is 
at this moment, she's lost that forgiveness, and she is filled with righteous, focused anger, not obsessive anger, but righteous anger. And she enlists the police, and they finally get him on something else, and he goes to jail, and she never forgives him. But she does forgive the town, and they attend. she has released the town from this man, and, and, and she realizes that she never said anything the town hadn't. And so she, it's, it's quite an amazing journey because she would say if she was here, forgiveness, this premature forgiveness, practically killed me. Uh, and it was my righteous anger that became focused not just about herself but on the town. And she became a speaker for abused women. And she changed the law in Portland, extending the statute of limitations for violent crimes from three years to ten years. So she she took that anger and made something positive out of it, and she got rid of that forgiveness that had made her weak and passive and accepting and paranoid. And it's like she recovered her life through through a righteous anger. And and I guess my last thought about that is there are very few people who can who can take righteous anger and not fall into an obsession with it. I mean, there's a reason for the Medusa myth, looking at the head of snakes and and, and turning into stone. Uh, anger is very tricky. And if you live inside anger for too long, it can become obsessive and you lose the sort of that kind of clarity that you might have when it isn't appropriate to forgive. Uh, and But Terry... Someone who kind of went into the underworld. She was her own Virgil, and she confronted her demons, and she confronted confronted the man who had tried to murder her in the most awful way, and who tyrannized the town. And she came into the light. It's, mm. it's a fascinating story mm. about the complexities of forgiveness, and when forgiveness really can be limiting and even dangerous. So. Can we take any generalities from the people you've talked? Because you have very complex uh, experiences, mm -hmm. a couple of which we have heard here. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, premature forgiveness can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps religiously mandated forgiveness can be more complex than we thought it was. Mm -hmm. There are perhaps uh, some crimes that in some hearts cannot be forgiven. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet, it's it's you can't live in that anger either. I think mm -hmm. your your quote in the the film, if I have it here, uh, there's an urgency to forgive. Mm -hmm. So if you live in in that anger, uh, it can take away your capacity to be present, present. be in the moment. Yes, I, I think that as anything, that's a single most useful <laughs> emotional truth I took away from the film. I had met an. Uh, I spent a lot of time with AIDS and HIV patients, and, and they have a almost a booyah base of forgiveness issues because these are people frequently who have been infected by others or have been careless with themselves, and therefore they have to forgive themselves, or they're angry at God, or they're angry at their spouse, or they have infected their own children. So it's just swirling around. This And this one amazing woman who had spent... I mean, she was HIV, and she began so and couldn't forgive herself. She'd been abused by her uncle sexually. Her husband had given her AIDS, and she spent seven years in kind of forgiveness therapy, and she was able finally to let it go 
actively forgive those who had infected her, even the uncle who had abused her, put them to the side. And I remember her saying to me, you know, she said, God, I wish I had her language. You know, Helen, I know it was like I had these people renting space in my head. It was like they were upstairs in my head. And taking away my capacity to live in the present, I could be in the midst of a wonderful birthday party for myself, and I would still be talking to them. They were living in my head. And when I finally cleared them out, just took out all these renters, they were, they were subletters, paying nothing, I found, you know, she said, I'm married now, I have a job, I show up for my shots, and I'm healthy, and, and I am in the present. And I was I just found her just a remarkably wise woman. Mm. But it forgiveness is so individual. I mean, what is works for one person may not work for another, and that is the complexity of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. We we define it for ourselves. We kind of know, as Justice Potter Stewart said when people pressed him, "Can you define pornography?" And he said. He just made an important ruling, and he said, well, not exactly, but I know it when I see it. (laughs) Well, I think that while they're very different, we kind of know when we have taken that journey and let that anger go or asked for forgiveness in the right and most measured and most penitential way and really sort of taken our own journey of penance as well. Mm Very hard to do. Yeah, as you rightly point out, it's individual, but it's universal yeah. on both sides because yeah. we've all been hurt and we've all hurt yes. other people. So that's very important for, for all of us. We're talking with Helen Whitney, uh, documentary filmmaker, award-winning filmmaker of The Mormons and Forgiveness and Faith and Doubt at Ground Zero and many others. I want to hear a couple of clips from Forgiveness that, that uh, we talked about. Maybe you could set this up. This is a woman mm-hmm. who in a Vietnam War protest is it right? uh, has... Mm-hmm. instrumental causing the death of man mm-hmm. and that man's daughter. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is we're going to be uh, uh, hearing from both Kathy Power and Claire Schroeder. And Kathy was a well-known uh, Vietnam War protester who, for some reason that she now disowns, felt that robbing a bank was a way of protesting the war. And somehow the funds from the robbing the bank were going to sort of help and uh, it, uh, just complete illogic, which she's well aware of, but the robbery went awry, and in the process of this robbery, a policeman was killed, uh, Claire Schroeder's father. Kathy Power was in the getaway car. She didn't have any she didn't have um, any access to the guns, but she was an accessory. And she went on the lam after this happened and escaped. None of the others did. They went to jail. She escaped for twenty odd years, but her conscience truly bothered her. She was a Catholic, and she had a successful life as a, as a gourmet cook, and as a, and she had hidden out. The FBI had put her on the most wanted list, but they couldn't find her. She had a husband, a child, a great career, and she turned herself in uh, and pled guilty 22 years later. And as she said in the film so eloquently, she said, I thought I had achieved my penitence by just doing that. Little did I know that the journey was yet to begin. And she spent eight years in jail, still somewhat angry, thinking that this 
she was a revolutionary with a good cause and realizing that she didn't have a good cause and, and that she had to, and what she had done had caused irreparable harm to a family, to a community, to herself, to her family. And she goes through another process of penitence, all the while hoping that Claire Schroeder would, would forgive her. But then at the very end of her penitence, which I think is extraordinary, an extraordinary story, she is offered, she has a chance for parole, and she turns it down because she hears Claire Schroeder, the daughter of the policeman who was killed, say in the parole hearing, I feel that she hasn't done her whole sentence. So she turns it down. And she and Kathy has a young son who is in, troubled and missing his mother. But she she come, came to understanding that she had to do this. She had to fulfill her obligations to herself, to the state, to Claire. And that she, in the end, her final insight was that she had no right to ask for forgiveness from Claire because it was an injury to Claire, uh, that she had to do her penance and forgive herself and then return to the community. It's an extraordinary story. Yeah, and Claire yeah. has a very different response and an interesting one. Let's hear this clip from uh, Kathy uh, Powers. Power? Power. Power. I tore something that will never be untorn. Walter Schroeder died young, and that doesn't go away no matter what I do. It lives with me. I wanted forgiveness. I wanted to earn forgiveness, and I wanted to receive forgiveness. I wanted to do what I had to do so that forgiveness would be offered to me. So she's she's talking about she at this point mm -hmm. she really wants forgiveness mm -hmm. she's seeking it mm -hmm. uh, you know with an extraordinary mm -hmm. uh, passion yes. and she talks about earning forgiveness and that's an interesting mm -hmm. subtopic as well mm -hmm. um, and I guess that that gets to the the question both from the perpetrator and then the person that's been harmed there might be different views mm -hmm. but but are there some crimes and some hurts that cannot be forgiven. Well, it again depends on the person. Um, Kathy went through her really 28-year penitential journey. Uh, and it followed, in some ways, it was quite Judaic because it followed that process that many Jews talk about as essential, that first you have to acknowledge what you have done to yourself and others, and publicly, which he did. And then there's a period of of penance and restitution, which she offered, which was herself. Uh, and then, you know, there is a period that you might, you know, ask for forgiveness or not, but the penitence must be real and searing and deep. And there are other folks, and they're not just Jews, but Christians in this regard. Uh, Claire Schroeder is Christian and a wonderful woman, wonderful woman, and her view is, and I hope we'll hear from her soon, that she yeah. wishes mm. Kathy Power well. Mm. She admires what she has done, which was to turn herself in, to stay in jail, and to give up parole, but she feels that murder is unforgivable, and like many Jews, she feels it is not within her right to offer forgiveness. It is only the right of the victim her father, who is dead and therefore cannot offer forgiveness. But I, I want to say that 
you know, I feel very protective of Kathy, I mean, of, of Claire as well. She's an admirable woman. She is not as a superficial sort of reaction might be among some, some people because she refuses to forgive that she's a lesser person. She's thought this out deeply, and she wishes Kathy well, but she cannot give her that absolution. Let's hear uh, this clip from uh, Claire Schroeder. I hope that she can say that she redeemed herself and became the person that she should have been. But I have to look at her, not as who she is, but as what she did. Because what she did is not something that I have the authority or the power to excuse or forgive. I I don't. I'm not the dead person. My father is the dead person. He's not here to say what you did was okay. He'll never be here to say what she did was okay. So what she did was not okay. It was not ever okay. It will never be okay. It's not forgivable, very simply. But that doesn't mean that she can't then go on to be the person that she hopes to become. And 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 that's a, that's a great goal. And I wish that for her. So she wishes Kathy yes, Power well. She really does. But she feels like she can't. She's not the one who can give forgiveness. Right. That that's her father, and he's gone. And he's gone, or God, or. <laughs> That she can forgive herself and whatever Kathy's relationship is to her sort of larger spiritual being, uh, that's between her. Mm-hmm. And I think that Kathy's sort of growth and maturity and spiritual maturity is to say yes. And I feel it's an imposition to even ask it of you. Mm-hmm. Quite a remarkable journey. Mm-hmm. Rare. <laughs> yeah. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll uh, finish with the, this film, Forgiveness. The second half of the film talks about this idea, which is new in our times, of entire nations mm-hmm. seeking forgiveness. Perhaps Germany is the epitome of this. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll talk a bit about this uh, with uh, documentary filmmaker Helen Whitney, author. What's up? I'm Shad, the host of Q, your destination for long-form conversations with the people driving arts, culture, and entertainment. From Norm Macdonald to Miranda July, Mumford & Sons to Juno Diaz, Q has got you covered. That's coming up from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us Thursday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. What is a subject that you are passionate about? What do you know more about than most? Utah Public Radio wants you to share your knowledge and become a source for the Utah Public Insight Network, a new collaborative effort between UPR and the Salt Lake Tribune. Information you share could help our reporters create more in-depth stories on the things that you care about or more meaningful discussion on our flagship program, Access Utah. Become a source today. Join UPIN. For more information, visit us online at upr.org. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're spending the hour with documentary filmmaker Helen Whitney. Her films have included The Mormons, Faith and Doubt at Ground Zero, and Forgiveness. That's the one we've been talking about for most of the hour. That's her latest film. Let's uh, finish with uh, forgiveness, and the second half of the film has to do with this interesting idea, which uh, which you say is quite new, of entire nations yes. seeking forgiveness. Uh, it was interesting. I uh, watched an interview with you. You you spent hours upon hours watching uh-huh. video of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. Yeah. That's held up as 
mm-hmm. as a great success story. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you agree. Mm-hmm. And there's some interesting things to learn from, from I guess, watching all those hours of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Well, I think that the situation in South Africa today is is enormously complicated. And while there isn't anyone I've ever interviewed who hasn't said that this was an extraordinary sort of achievement, this Truth and Reconciliation Reconciliation Commission, because that country might have just erupted when apartheid finally uh, ended. Nonetheless, the situation remains very much the same. There are deep divisions in that society. There's profound economic inequality. Crime is on the rise. AIDS is everywhere. So it hasn't been a miracle cure, uh, but it was an important first step. And out of so many of these Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, there have been about 30 in the last uh, 30, 40 years. This is one that learned from the mistakes of others and is considered one of the, the great successes, the great success stories. And it is part of something that I felt is truly new. Um, Ecclesiastes said it best, something new under the sun, is that forgiveness has migrated out of the personal realm into the political realm. And nations in the last 50, 60 years, whether opportunistically, whether cynically, whether genuinely, are literally and metaphorically digging up the bones of people who've been massacred or unearthing the files and and stepping up to the plate to say, you know, to the, they're stepping up to the plate and saying, we cannot move forward unless we acknowledge the darkness of our past. And, you know, Australia is the resounding example. It's the best, it's the the template apology of any nation, as is, uh, I think, the um, Willie Brandt's apology. Um, in, he's a, a German who fell down on his knees in Warsaw in front of the gates, saying silently, just praying. And in that prayer, that silent prayer, people knew what he was saying. And it really changed the course of Polish-Jewish relations. So this is something new under the sun. Mm-hmm. You know, the powerful rarely sort of, sort of said, well, maybe we did something wrong. Not the way things usually happen. Mm-hmm. There are complicated reasons for that and how we got to this point. But it is something new under the sun. Well, I wonder why and why now? Why in our times? Well, that's a question I asked virtually everyone uh, in that act and, and throughout the film. And, and people would say, you know, that is the question. Uh, but I, and no one had a definitive answer. But I think the one that emerged uh, and that really makes the most sense is today with the Internet, with these cameras, with tweeting, which I have no idea how to do, leaders – Government officials, nations can no longer hide their sins, their genocide. And even for the most cynical reasons, national leaders don't want to be exiled. They want to be in the League of Nations. And the Idi Amins of the world, um, you know, might have second thoughts right now because whatever they're doing is being caught on them. That kind of transparency, I think has has affected this particular event because it is a seismic event. I mean, mm-hmm. it is. It, it's nothing quite like this 
move of forgiveness into this political realm. And mm. of course, it has a, it's absurd you know, footnotes. I mean, all of us watching these politicians rush with their betrayed wives to the microphone to apologize. I mean, there's a ludicrous app, you know, part of it as well. Or, you know, our own Congress apologizing for not apologizing <laughs> for racism. I mean, for lynching. I mean, it's and obviously the motives are mixed and, and few are pure. But I think it's extraordinary that it's happening at all. Mm. Do you think the, the U.S. and you know those in power in the U.S. should uh, jump in and, and, and follow the example of Australia, Germany, for example, for slavery, for Jim Crow, for treatment of American Indians? Absolutely. Absolutely. We have made one official apology a which was important, took about 20 years to do it for, the, for our internment of the Japanese Americans. I do feel it. I think we have dark corners in our past. Torture, the torture during the Iraq War, absolutely. Uh, I think there has to be some kind of accountability for it. The history of slavery, our treatment of the uh, Native Americans absolutely parallels what Australia did. Absolutely. And so... You know, cities are doing it. States are doing it. Uh, there are truth and commissions in a, on a local level. But no, I think our country has much to learn from. Perhaps the example of Germany, though I in no way equate World War II and the Holocaust in any way with with America. But I do think that Germany, modern Germany's penitential journey. Uh, since World War II, since the Holocaust, has been extraordinary. Mm. Uh, and it, unfortunately, it wasn't the perpetrators who ever apologized, but it was their daughters and their grandsons and great-grandsons who have made extraordinary uh, financial restitution and educational restitution and endless apologies and the, te the textbooks have been changed and every young German is, you know, before third grade is visiting the, uh, you know, the Holocaust Museum and, and, and learning about what their country was responsible for. So I think Germany offers quite an extraordinary example of what a nation can do. Mm. So we just have about five or six minutes left. Uh, we've been talking about forgiveness, a time to love and a time to hate, the, the most recent film from Helen Whitney. I wanted to get in a little bit of a conversation on the Mormons. Uh, you probably caught this on PBS uh, a few years ago. Let's hear just a couple of minutes from the prologue to the, to the movie. It is one of the world's fastest-growing religions. Its members project pride in their faith and confidence in their future. They walk the corridors of power, leaders in Congress, and even running for president. But for the Mormons, it was not always so. In the 19th century, to call someone a Mormon was akin to calling someone a Muslim terrorist. Tonight, Frontline and American Experience join forces to tell the story of one of the most powerful, feared, and misunderstood religions in American history. A column of light appeared in his room, and then a person came down, very glowing person. He says he's the angel Moroni. And so he begins to tell Joseph about the Book of Mormon. This is the story of Joseph Smith and the revelations that gave birth to a new faith born in America. What outraged the traditional Christians of the day was that this guy comes along and he says, I am the prophet for this new age. 
The story of religious conflict and persecution. When that mob stormed Carthage jail and shot the Prophet Joseph, they thought they were finishing off Mormonism as a movement. And the story of a people who crossed a continent to establish their own spiritual kingdom. Brigham Young is telling the federal government to back off from the Utah Territory. We will take care of ourselves. And of a church that for decades defied society by embracing polygamy and then abruptly abandoned it. How do you go from being the ultimate... That's just a bit from the prologue to the movie, giving some of the themes. And we just maybe have a, a time for a couple of questions on the Mormons. I, I think appropriate to spend a lot of time on forgiveness. Uh, I think people may wonder, what, what was your goal going into, into this? This was, what year was this? This was a few so, years ago. Yeah, it was about six years ago. And, you know, it really is aligned with my interest. I am fascinated with radical religious commitment. And uh, that's why I went into the monastery, that Trappist monastery, and... One of the many obvious truths about the Mormon religion is that it is not a Sunday 9 to 5 religion. It is a radical commitment. And I was I I was well aware that there had not been really up to that point, you know, a, a textured, layered, fair look at this religion that has been so misunderstood. So it was virgin territory for a filmmaker. And I also think that, you know, it's a fascinating time uh, in in Mormon history. Uh, they're at a crossroads that are familiar to many religions. You know, the initial fire is gone. The institutional church is in ascendancy. And what move will they make? Uh, will they become less literal and move to metaphor? Will will they, how will they greet the, the demands of science, uh, the questions of, of gays, uh, of their dissenters? It's, 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 a, it's a point in their history that's familiar to many other religions as they encounter modernity. So what a great time to look at a religion I, I was genuinely fascinated by and felt that had been misperceived and misrepresented and you know it was it was as i said before virgin territory for the mm-hmm. filmmaker mm-hmm. had a big impact as well so mm-hmm. it has been a pleasure thank you and a pleasure for me as well for producer shalane smith needham i'm tom williams thanks for listening thank you for listening to access utah and our conversation with filmmaker helen whitney about forgiveness Shifting gears to another film with the same theme, UPR's Carrie Bringhurst recently attended the premiere of an independent movie filmed in Utah about a Utah father who faced tragedy and learned to forgive. Religious leaders, psychologists, and families attended the event on Monday night, an evening of forgiveness. Walking the Path to Forgiveness, a one-week journey, is part of Desmond Tutu's Fourfold Forgiveness Challenge and was the focus of a movie premiere held in Utah as a way of sharing the story about a man who survived an automobile accident that left his wife and unborn child dead. Two of his four other children were also killed when a drunk driver veered into their pathway in Salt Lake City one night in February of 2007. I hope that they'll just pick... This day is a day to just let go, to say, okay, from this day forward, I'm going to just let go of uh, whatever it is that's been holding him back. Chris Williams' story of forgiveness was first shared in the book he wrote, and now through the independent film, Just Let Go, 
And it's a way also, I think, for me to memorialize my family. You know, I believe they live on and they're watching me. And so I want to make sure that they're proud of the, the way that I'm trying to move forward in my life, especially my children, Benjamin and Anna, that their lives stood for that. Actor Henry Ian Cusick, known for his role as Desmond in the popular television series Lost, plays Chris William in the movie. How do you make the hero of the story a peaceful man, but a strong man, and a man that you could admire? I go, I'd like to be like that. While I did empathize, and that's what I do as an actor, and I could sort of feel and guess this is what it must have felt like, I never was, you, you can't really know until it happens to you. People can see what he did and be inspired by that, and I am. We can all, if we wish, choose to forgive. It was the most crushing moment of my life, emotionally, physically, spiritually. William and Kusick joined representatives from the Tutu Global Forgiveness Challenge Monday night in Ogden to invite guests of the movie premiere, which was broadcast to 500 theaters nationwide, to take this week to forgive one person. Reporting from Perry's Egyptian Theater in Ogden, I'm Carrie Bringhurst with Utah Public Radio. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. The stagecoach is a legendary symbol of the American West, part of a transportation network that spans the continent. How did Utah fit into this network? Learn more after this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Traveling to Utah was difficult, to say the least, in the mid-19th century. Major land routes between the east and west coasts skirted Utah to the north and south. The need for easier communication between a quickly growing Salt Lake City and the outside world drove the development of new transportation routes for both mail and passengers. The first stagecoach service to meet the new demand was started in 1858 by George Chorpening using the Central Overland Route, a new trail that ran through central Utah and Nevada to California. The route was originally scouted in 1855 by Howard Egan, who used it to drive cattle, and was improved by U.S. Army Captain James Simpson, who used it to supply Camp Floyd during the Utah War. The new route was about 280 miles shorter than the more northerly California Trail, shaving off two weeks of travel. The outbreak of the Civil War in 1861 blocked stagecoach transportation in the south, forcing the U.S. government to shift its communication lines north to the Central Overland Route. Wells Fargo purchased the route, and their iconic stagecoaches ran regularly through Salt Lake City. Stages changed teams about every 13 miles, so stops developed along the way. The Stagecoach Inn, which still exists in Fairfield, Utah, across from Camp Floyd, was one of those stops. Passengers could now travel from Missouri to California in about 25 days. In 1863, the fare was $200, and meals were 60 cents. Many famous people traveled the route through Utah, including writer Mark Twain, newspaper editor Horace Greeley, and English explorer Richard Burton. Burton described the torture along some parts of the route, saying that passengers became crazy by whiskey mixed with want of sleep. With the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869, the Central Overland Route through Utah was practically abandoned. Although stagecoaches continued to reach areas not served by the railroad, the heyday of the stagecoach was over. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Michelle Hill. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, 
I'm Megan Van Frank. This week in This American Life. Okay, there's that pizza with the little hot dogs as the crust, or that KFC sandwich or fried chicken as the bread with bacon and cheese inside. I mean, somewhere there are rooms where they invent these things and they debate, oh, macaroni and cheese on a burger, sir, you have gone too far, or not far enough. You taste the macaroni and cheese, but overall that's kind of a bland flavor. We go to the room where it happens this week. Join us Saturday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. This is Brian Erickson and Bringing More to Life. Leaving a home can seem like an ending instead of a new chapter in life. When helping aging parents move, don't rush. Allow time to cherish photos, letters, and mementos that trigger stories of your parents' life. Expect unexpected emotion from both of you. Express sorrow but also excitement for what lies ahead. Set a positive tone. Use your ears as often as you use your arms. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Mitsuko Uchida loves playing Mozart concertos without a conductor. The orchestra players have to listen more carefully. They are not playing with the eyes, but they are playing with the ears. And that means the collaboration is much closer. Uchida collaborating with the Cleveland Orchestra on the next Performance Today from APM. Join us Thursday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Science at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. The time now is 10 o'clock.